Hey, are you ready to grow your business? You have checked out the number one resource for business leaders, entrepreneurs, startup founders, and managers. And we're going to teach you how to grow and scale your business with real actionable steps. There's no fluff in this podcast. It's just good advice. Check out this episode. If you're a first-time listener, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And if you enjoy this episode, leave us a five-star review. Today's episode is with Marissa Badgley. She's the owner of Relevution, and she's here to tell you how to make work suck less. Check out this episode. Here comes your good advice. Hey, thanks for checking out another episode of the podcast. I'm here with Marissa Badgley. She's the owner of Relevution. Her whole mission is to help work suck less. She cares about the people in your organization. She cares about developing a heart-healthy infrastructure for your business and your organization, whether it's a nonprofit business, a for-profit business. Uh, she is the person to reach out to. Marissa, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I am excited to have you today, and I, I just, you know, I we are we have mutual feelings here about uh, really caring about the people in an organization. But you know, as I was reading about your bio, I was kind of like, yes, yeah, you know, I was kind of checking the boxes, and I was like, everybody needs something like this. Talk to me a little bit about how did you get into what you're doing for a living? You know, how did you develop this organization? Give me a little bit of the history. Absolutely. So. I am coming out of over a decade of working in the nonprofit education sector and had the tremendous privilege of being able to work on incredible projects with incredible people and found myself in consistent cycles of burnout and organizational dysfunction. And I loved what I was doing and found that the systems that I was operating in were not supporting me as a real life human being. And as I started talking to other people, I realized that their work environments were also not supporting them as human beings. And so last year I made the very difficult decision to leave a job that I really cared about with people that were incredibly smart and caring and took some time to heal from my own personal burnout and think about what makes me me and what has made me successful over the course of my career. And I kept coming back to these two words. So love and compassion, love and compassion, and feeling like if only my boss or my company had cared more, or if only leaders cared and were able to actionably care about their employees. So in October of last year, Relevution was born. And as you so eloquently put it, we're trying to help work suck less. Mm -hmm. And we think that there is a better way. There is an alternative. And one of the things that I've learned through my research and in my initial projects is that the things that make work suck to begin with, so lack of appreciation, unrealistic workload, negative interpersonal dynamics, and ineffective teams, and leaders not being fully prepared for leadership roles, 
all of those things are preventable. Hmm. And so I am really on a mission to help organizations and companies and schools and leaders think about how to proactively build systems that support the human beings, the real life human beings that make our companies possible to begin with. So, so talk to me a little bit about, cause like everything that you said, you know, we're talking about the human element. We, we don't want the drama piece. We don't want people to feel burned out. And I, I think there isn't any owner out there who would say, uh, no, I do want drama or I do want, you know, people to <laughs> hate their job. And yet it's, it is a, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an epidemic really in the workforce, right? So like, what, where's the disconnect? How do these things happen? Yeah. So there are a lot of answers to that question. The first disconnect is around mindset. So a lot of businesses and even in nonprofits are built around conceptions of fear and scarcity and competition and things just need to be efficient. And what I'm trying to help people do is pivot towards a model that's more built around collaboration and compassion and alleviating people's suffering both at work and outside of work. And one of the biggest challenges there is that when you use the words compassion and love in a business context, a lot of leaders go, oh, no, we can't do that. That's soft and mushy-gushy stuff and it doesn't work. And yet a lot of research is coming out right now about the importance of empathy and compassion in the workplace. Um, so we know that 77% or maybe a little bit higher than that actually at this point would work for an organization um, would work more. They'd work more hours and accept a slashed salary if their organization were to become more compassionate. And I think that there's also the sense of business, this is the way that it's always been. So of course, we're supposed to work ridiculous hours and we get badges of honor if we say, we just worked an 80-hour week last week. And look at how amazing we are. And what winds up happening is that those mindsets aren't sustainable in the long term. And so what we wind up seeing that people are burnt out. People are exhausted emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually, and find themselves in a space similar to where I was, that it was sort of an existential crisis. Like I really love what I'm doing in the best case scenario and it is not sustainable to me as a person to do this anymore. And so flipping the model on its head a little bit and thinking about people first, human beings first, and then moving into that being the generator of profit and revenue and all of the things that are important to thrive in business. Yeah. And it's, it's strange how, you know, and you've even said it yourself, like gushy and soft and, it's wild to me that whenever we talk about like empathy, which you're spot on, empathy is such a, um, it's, it's a determinant for a healthy, productive culture. And it's amazing how when we throw those words around, I, th I think you're right. There's people who are a bit put off by it, who they envision like, oh, I need to like hug on my staff or, <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, let's not get like a, you know, a sexual harassment thing going on here. But that's where their mind goes is I'm supposed to have like this very therapeutic, soft, uh, you know, just, and as you put it, mushy, gushy culture when really that's, that's not quite what 
it's not quite what I've seen in practice in terms of what that looks like. Well, you know, what are some things that you've seen that illustrate maybe that empathy culture? Yeah. So one of the things that's just really important is to provide the alternative definition of what love and empathy and compassion can mean. And so if you think about love in a relationship, sometimes that feels soft, mushy, and gushy, but a lot of times it's about high accountability and making sure that there's high level of trust and trust is made up of credibility and reliability and the quality of your relationships. So those things aren't easy at all. And they're certainly not soft. They're really, really hard. (laughs) And so I think that we have to start naming those things and saying that it's not necessarily about the hugs, but it is about wrapping our, our arms around and providing the support to the people who are doing this important work. And so some of the ways that I see that coming out in workplaces, it goes beyond employee recognition systems. It's systematized gratitude and naming specifically what you are grateful for that a person has done, how that person can recreate that. It's about showing appreciation, which is a little bit different than gratitude. It's about preparing our leaders. And so one of the things that happens is that people get pushed into a leadership role or a management role without having the skills or training or professional development. And sometimes you'll send them to a one-day professional development and expect that they are going to pop out the most amazing leader ever. And that is antithetical to an empathetic culture, right? So we need to make sure that our people are set up for success that there are systems in place to move people along when there are lagging skills, that people have strong mentors either within or outside of the system, that we are abundantly transparent as much as we possibly can. And I think that the biggest one is about leaving our egos at the door (laughs) and recognizing that we can see ourselves as the leader and we are a part of the machine that makes our organizations function. And that means that it's about more than us. And there's actually, yeah. Well, I'm sorry, go ahead. No. So there's actually some interesting research about what goes into a trusting relationship. And so I mentioned reliability and credibility. The other two components are about intimacy, how well you know your people and self-orientation, how much of it is about you versus being about the people that you are leading and that you are privileged to be able to lead. And every one of those pieces is incredibly important to making leaders, creating leaders that work. And we often don't think about that, um, about that self-orientation piece, that it's really not about us. Mm-hmm. It's about this, the mission. It's about our values. It's about the North Star that we're all moving towards together. And the leader's job is to get everyone on track to get there. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, it's funny because everything, nothing you've said has been mushy-gushy. It sounds like everything you've said is what you would want out of a high-performing, high-outcome culture that is also sustainable. And I think that's probably the caveat there is a lot of people are proud of 
the outcomes that they've built with their team, but it's totally not sustainable. It is, it is burnout central. It is, you know, you're constantly hiring new talent. Um, my, a friend of mine was joking about how for his company, it's notorious for bringing in people who've just graduated, but Mm -hmm. no one stays after three years. And he's been there for maybe four or five years. And he says, he's literally the only person out of like 30 or 40 people. I mean, it's just, you know, and, and he's actually moving on now. And so, you know, I think that sustainability piece is really important, but ultimately we, you know, just like you said, we are talking about those outcomes that move the needle. We're not talking about, you know, we just like each other, or this is just a happy go lucky work environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that sustainability piece is really important to me. So one of the things that I look at in terms of when I'm designing my assessments and my consulting services and my professional development is that we're moving beyond band-aids and that we're working to diagnose what are the actual diseases that are coming up um, and getting to the root of those challenges with antibiotics and a holistic approach. So it's not just that we're going to lead a training on how to communicate better but there has to be the follow-up support to continue coaching on that and to ensure that the systems and the policies, which so often let us down, are designed to allow for communication to happen effectively. So so how how do you, because I've run into the same problem where you have have a company, they have some extra dollars, uh, or maybe it's not even about budget, maybe they've just sensed that there's some drama Perfect example, actually, let me get very specific. A friend of mine was telling me about a company that became very toxic and people started quitting and the ownership team said, okay, I have an idea. Let's do a team building day or let's have someone come in and speak on, uh, and it's something really obnoxious like commitment or you know, having an ownership mentality or basically putting the, the focus on the employees rather than taking responsibility as the leader. How often do you do you run into something like that where someone is looking for the Band-Aid fix and here you are thinking, okay, me just showing up for an hour or two uh, or even a half day isn't going to fix systemic problems. How do you get someone to actually own that and realize, wow, there's there's something I need to do here to actually fix these problems? Yeah. So to get people to own it, you have to name it. And I regularly say that. So people invite me to come in and lead a one hour, two hour, three hour workshop. And I am abundantly clear that that is not going to solve your engagement challenges. And so giving, saying, I'm happy to do that because I believe in professional development and I believe that it should be offered And here are my recommendations in terms of follow-up services and also my recommendations for what can happen in that moment. So the first is that I am really well prepared to know the mindsets and how people are doing before I walk into that room because it allows me to customize the professional development offering, which makes it a little bit more impactful. I think that the other piece is around making sure that there are very specific action steps that people are naming during that workshop and then naming to the other people to be able to hold accountable in the long term. I'm also a really fierce proponent of the leaders being in the room and it not just being a, this is for line staff thing and we're magically going to have a better culture. Part of this work is being more collaborative across hierarchy. And so 
oftentimes that's enough for just sitting in is enough for a leader to be able to feel like, oh, wait, there's more to it than this. We're not going to solve these problems right now, in which, at which point we have a deeper conversation. I think that it's really hard because the work that I'm doing is about mindset shift. And so system change requires a desire and a motivation to change the system. And for a lot of people, the system is operating just fine. So we don't want to touch it. So let's do all of these lower level things and interventions and not worry about disrupting the system. And we know that that winds up being inequitable in a lot of cases, fostering the norm and dynamics of power and privilege that are often um, unnoticed and unacknowledged in workplaces. And we can do better than that. And I say that to leaders all the time, that we can do better than the three-hour workshop. Let me tell you more about how we can do that. I was in a conversation this morning and I made it very clear that what they were asking for was going to be a six month or more project. Because when we're thinking about toxic work cultures, we're also thinking about trauma and a need to heal. So the intervention isn't enough. It's about healing the relationships that have been broken in the toxicity. It's about figuring out how to make people trust again when in some cases they haven't trusted their boss in 20 years. Mm. Um, I just read this statistic that's absolutely crazy that 58% of people trust their uh, trust a stranger on the street more than their own boss. Wow. That is terrifying. And it points to an existential crisis of work in general. Nice. Um, that's, that's more than mix. one in two people that don't trust their bosses. <laughs> so yeah. that's really scary. I mean, yeah, that's that's pretty troubling. I, I'm shocked to hear that. I, I can't say I'm surprised though. I mean, but you know, it's it's funny and I love, you know, listening to you. It's really funny because I'm thinking through, you know, sometimes companies just get this backwards where they don't think about owning the change they need to have happen in their organization. And so they rely on, you know, there's nothing wrong with the workshops, nothing wrong with the seminar, but it becomes a bit obnoxious when that is the Band-Aid fix. Perfect example, I had a company who asked me to come speak and they said, well, what do you want to speak about? And I said, well, well, what are you guys like working on? Like, what are the culture shifts you're already, that's already important to you? And what I can do is supplement that, but it doesn't make sense if I come talk about a random topic and, you know, things continue to be toxic or managers don't change anything. I am curious, by the way, I love what you said about having the leader in the room. How do you create a space where, because I can think about the employee who's thinking like, well, heck, I'm not saying anything with, you know, with that person there. How do you, how do you, you have the person there, but you also create safety and trust for them to, because sometimes people have very raw feelings, you know? So how do you- Most of the time. (laughs) Yeah. And so how do you, how do you create that situation? Yeah. So being human is inherently emotional. And one of the things that I talk about a lot is that conflict and discomfort and unpleasant emotions are completely inevitable. It's how we deal with those things that matters. I think that I want to clarify that there are moments, there are trainings that I do where the leaders are not allowed to be in the room. And that's very important to cultivating trust and figuring out how to move forward. 
I think that in terms of the generic workshop, having the leader in the room, they are engaged as a full participant. And a lot of the activities that I do and the interactions that I foster are about helping people see each other on a more human level. And so we talk a lot in the field about we need to be compassionate towards our staff. And we often forget that we also need to be compassionate towards our supervisors. And we can't give more compassion in one direction or another, but it's easier to foster that empathy downward if you're thinking about hierarchy than it is to give the empathy and compassion to our supervisors who are often working really hard and just do not have the tools and skills to be able to do what it is that they have been tasked with doing. And what I find incredibly powerful is when the leader, when the manager is able to participate fully as a participant and say, and start sharing and being courageous in their sharing. And I encourage them to share because vulnerability is a huge piece of building trusting relationships. And when people see that, it makes them feel safer to do it themselves. When the leader is in the other room, not engaging in the hard conversations, it leads to more divides. And that that's really that's really hard to get over. I led a training in the fall and I had encouraged all the leaders to be in the room. Um, And what that translated to for them was that they were sitting in the back row on their phones, answering emails the whole time. And in the evaluation, it came up at least five times that one of the things that they would have liked to change was for their leaders to actually have engaged in the conversation with them and not their presence, not just being lip service. And that was, yeah. Well, isn't it just a bit wild that, and this is kind of what's so strange to me. It's, it's man, it's like, we're not talking about like royalty versus like, you know, the peasant, like it's, it's, it's people. Right. And, and yet you would think that being in the room, there wouldn't be such an obvious disconnect. Like, you know, because even hearing the story, I can imagine being in that room and being like, are you kidding me? Like, Mm -hmm. you guys are here and you don't see, like, even if I was an employee, I would be like, are you really? Like, you can't see what you're communicating right now. And it reminds me of when I was a, I was actually, I remember I was a high school teacher and I remember there was a lot of drama between the administrators and us and a lot of toxicity. And I remember the, we were all in like a big team meeting and one of my teachers, my co-teachers, you know, nudged me on the shoulder and said, Blake, look at them. And he pointed to all the administrators because we had like five or six principals and they were all sitting on the back row, totally disengaged. And he said, whenever I become an administrator, I'm going to make sure I don't do that. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a bit, it's so obvious in hindsight, but for whatever reason, I see leaders who they just, they're, they just, they can't see it. It's like a disconnect that just, it's, it's a blind spot and even calling it a blind spot. is not strong enough a word. Um, but what's ironic is those situations seem to even do more harm because the person now was in the room and yet their total disengagement 
it almost it feels like it almost frustrates people even more when they demonstrate that kind of behavior. Yeah. So the kicker to the story is that the training was on employee engagement. So I just I find that funny. Um, wow. And to your point about the working in schools, I do a lot of work in schools and with districts and with teachers and the same people who complain about their children not listening and being on their cell phones don't listen and are on their cell phones the entire time. Mm-hmm. And so there, there is, there is a disconnect. And I think that technology makes it much harder. Um, we're constantly reminded of all of the other things that we need to be doing. And I think that part of it is that people hire external trainers so that they don't have to do it, which means <laughs> that it frees up their time yeah. for doing other things. Right. And if you really are invested in that training, you need to make sure that you are gaining the same skills as your staff or as your supervisors or that they're cascading mechanisms to be able to really create um, really create sustainable changes together. Um, because if that supervisor is hearing and engaging in the content, they can then use that in a check-in down the road. But if they're not in the room, there's no way to really but, hold, account- hold them accountable. And, and there's certainly merit to leading up and influencing up and trying to create change from the front line. However, I, I've always thought it was so ironic that dysfunctional bosses send their employees to trainings to get, you know, quote fixed. And then the employee is in such a, I mean, they're between a rock and a hard place of, I know the culture is toxic. I feel it. You know, I feel that uh, we're missing it, but to go back to my boss and change it, there's only so much, especially when the change needs to be far reaching, even beyond like a one-on-one relationship. I think that's a bit of a disconnect too. And, And what's really ironic about this is, and I don't know if you've run into this before, but in my situation is if I'm not careful in these situations, it actually reflects poorly on my brand where the owner in hindsight's like, why did I hire you? That didn't fix our toxic culture. And it's mm. like, yeah, you know, that, that seminar was never going to fix your culture. <laughs> you know, you're the one who creates those behaviors and enforces them and, you know, needs to own this. And I don't know, it's just it, that disconnect. It's just, maybe it's ego. Um, it's just, it's crazy how often it gets seen. Yeah. So I've been doing work in uh, school for the last few months and they hired me to work with their teachers and it became very apparent that this was going to be something that was put on their teaching staff rather than something that was tackled as a school. And we were able to sit down with the administrators in the building and really explain why it was so important for the administrators to engage in this and that the intervention with the teachers would be powerful, but it would be far more powerful if also approached from that systems level piece. So again, thinking about what is getting in the way of our teachers being able to accomplish the things we're asking them to accomplish. Because initially it was, wait, you're asking us to do one more thing. I'm worried about test scores. I'm worried about my students' behaviors. I'm worried about my curriculum. I'm worried about my contracts, like all of these things. And so just 
plugging in with the teachers felt like an added thing. It was like, oh my goodness, they are asking for more from me. Mm-hmm. And I know that I'm not going to get the support that I need from the people who are supposed to be giving that support because they're not engaged in this process. And we were able to really turn things around in terms of fostering those connections and thinking through what is the teacher's role in this? What is the administrator's role in this? And then what do we have to change in terms of the fibers and the values and the mission of this school where we can start moving in the same direction again? And it requires everybody. It can't just be a one group or another thing. Well, and I, you know, it's thinking through this even contextually, I want to ask you about a stereotype that I, I think some people have, you know, you're talking about for-profit businesses. You're talking about schools. A lot of times people, their stereotype of a nonprofit <laughs> is people who are, man, they are so empathetically driven. We really love it here. You know, you know, hoorah, let's get it. And it's very mission oriented and very values driven. And yet, realistically speaking, I know personally, I see incredible burnout in the nonprofit space. You talked about it as well as you were uh, entering your story a little bit. What's the disconnect even translating this over to the nonprofit world? Well, everybody needs this. And so all of the research shows that nonprofits and for-profits and public sector jobs, everybody can work on the types of things that I'm talking about, infusing more humanity, more empathy, more compassion. I think that in the nonprofit sector, <laughs> there are there's a conception that because you care so much, you will do anything for your people, which is true for so many people, including myself, I was willing to go the extra mile because I cared so much about the populations we were serving, about the work that we were doing in the community. And for a while in my career, I was a bleeding heart. I was the stereotypical bleeding heart and realized that for me to be sustainable in my work and effective in my work, I needed to create some really strong boundaries for myself. One of the things that's really challenging within the nonprofit sector is that the intervention that's tried to pl- that we try to plug in over and over again is this concept of self-care, which, and I guess that's not specific to the nonprofit sector actually, but, but it's an added thing. It becomes, again, the onus is put on the employee to change something in their life or add something to their life, go for that massage, go for the run, make sure you're eating a healthy meal at night. Those things are hard and they take time and it is a cover-up, right? And we're not actually addressing the systems that are forcing us to adopt self-care. And we, so it's great when a nonprofit or an agency can bring in um, massages into the workplace. But in my experience, most of the people don't sign up because they're so burnt out and busy that it's like, I can't take time to sit down and get a massage or do whatever the wellness program is. And so I, I talk about, um, we have to move beyond pizza parties and ping pong tables. Um, (laughs) and (laughs) really think about what are the things that are going to change the work that we're doing. 
And I think, so I think that there's something true about the fact that people who work for nonprofits are more empathetically driven or more mission oriented. And I've met a lot of people in the for-profit sector that are also empathetically driven and that are mission oriented and that care tremendously about the work that they're doing. The difference is the context in which it's operating. So scarcity looks and feels really different in a nonprofit than it does in a for-profit. And that, that difference matters a lot. What's wild to me is, and you, man, you nailed it so well the businesses and it's for-profit and non-profit, but they delude themselves that the perks are what make someone, what make it a sustainable work environment, like the pizza party, like, but at the end of the day, you know, the person's still miserable, miserable. They're still burned out. They're still, in fact, I remember if we even go like farther down that road, I've even seen some non-profit directors who ironically enough were vindictive and manipulative. I remember I had one who, she had really gotten after her, one of her employees who was trying to take time off for vacation and was requesting a week off, hadn't taken, taken any vacation the entire year, was asking for a week off. And the director said she must not care about the kids that were serving, which it's interesting that that's where it's kind of yeah. scary. You, you use the word boundary and it's really an invasion of boundaries. It's, it's this really weird, demented manipulation around the mission rather than understanding people's long-term ability to give. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever run yeah. into something like that. It's Oh, it's I regularly, both as an employee and in my role now, I think that one of the things that has been one of my imp- most important practices is that when I went on vacation, I was very clear with everybody that my email was going completely off and I would not be answering text messages or emails or even looking at it until I got back to my desk at the end of it. And I remember the first time I said that to a boss, they were like, well, what if we need you? I'm like, well, I'm going to leave you with a really comprehensive package of like all wherever where you can find everything and you can talk to my staff, you can talk to whoever and but this is my time and to pivot what you just said or to flip what you just said about you must not care about our kids my rationale is it's because I care about these kids that I need this vacation right because I am exhausted and I need to turn off and after the first couple of times of that I got really daring and I started saying I'm actually going to toggle my work email off at 5:30 p.m. no matter what even if I'm still sitting at my desk doing work that's my choice it's not because I'm answering people's emails who are coming in out of work hours mm-hmm. and um have given my team's permission to do that mm-hmm. and it's the little things it's the, the boss that emails at three o'clock in the morning and expects a response. But even if you don't respect or, or expect a response, people see that you're sending an email at 3 a.m. and it sets a precedent for doing that. Right. And it models that it's okay to be working in the middle of the night. And right. some people can function that way. Most people cannot in the long run. Yeah. And I, I had yeah. a boss who would jokingly say, um, Perfect example of that. And she would say, 
do as I say, not as I do. Because she was the 3 a.m. emailer, which, which I, I appreciated the comment, but at the same time, I was like, okay, but really, you have to. And, but you know, when you actually think this thing through and you actually see it play out well, I think about, I had a paid intern one time and we were really big on not bothering someone on their day off and it was her day off and I really needed to find a file for a client that I was working with. Couldn't find it anywhere. So I call her and I, I say, hey, I'm just, and she goes, Blake, it's my day off. <laughs> just immediately, just fired off, Blake, it's my day off. And I thought, you're right. I'm sorry. You know, yeah. but, and then I had, I just had to figure it out. You know, I had to, and we found it. It was fine. It was no big deal. But, uh, you know, it feels like it, when you create the safety for the frontline employee to even hold you as the boss accountable, it feels like that's how it should look rather than just always a top down, you know, approach. Yeah, it has to go both ways. So I have been in the situation where my boss was on vacation and I needed something and I didn't, I didn't know where to find it. And it was her vacation. And so I needed to be creative and figure out how to get around that and ask the right people for help. And it's about mutual respect for mm-hmm. each other's boundaries and time. And it sets it up for the one emergency situation where it's okay. Right. It's like, because it's like the boy who cried wolf when you do it over and over and over again, and they stop answering at the end. Um, but if we don't do it and we maintain those boundaries, then we know it's really, really serious when that phone call or that tech message comes through and we can make a choice about whether or not to answer it in that moment. But it's a choice. It's not being coerced into working through your vacation. (laughs) And you know, it's so wild is I I just know there's people listening to this who were like, oh my gosh, like, please come to my job. Talk to my bosses. You know, your work is meaningful. It's making a difference. Tell the audience, because we're we're about out of time, which is crazy because I feel like we just started. I I know. I didn't even get to figure out who you are and like your story. So we'll have to, we'll have to continue this conversation again at some point. What's good. What can listeners do right now to engage with you, to follow you? What's the best way for people to do that? Yeah. So follow along on social media. So on across all of the channels, it's at True Relevution. And um, Blake, I think that you can probably post the website, but that's www.truerelevution.com. And Our name is really important. It's love in the center of the revolution. And I believe that the revolution of work is coming, that it's here, and that there is so much potential in that word love, in the concept of compassion and supporting each other and building solid relationships. And so I offer four sets of services. The first is uh, an audit and assessment to be able to come in and look at your organizational culture on a really holistic level and think about what are the things that we can change on to support leaders and support those more systemic pieces. I also do a ton of workshops and it's totally fine to ask me to do a three-hour workshop. Just be prepared (laughs) to have the follow-up questions. Um, and then I also do some work uh, with leading team retreats and offsites and um, some coaching for new managers. So I'm happy to talk to anybody about their journey and really support in 
going back to the beginning and making work suck a little bit less for everyone. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, for our listeners, I'll put uh, the website, I'll put her social media handle. Uh, Definitely also give Marissa a follow on LinkedIn. Again, that'll all be in the episode description. Marissa, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. And good luck to all of your listeners, to all of you out there fighting the good fight every day. That's right. Keep after it, listeners. And hey, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to shoot me an email, blake at goodadvicecoaching.com. Let me know what you thought. You can also leave the review, uh, excuse me, you can leave the podcast a five-star review if you really enjoyed it. Or you can subscribe to the podcast, share it with a friend, make sure other people can find out about it, hear about it. Because we are impacting business owners and businesses one person at a time. Thanks for listening and we will catch you next week. See ya.